Uh, Today, we're going to read most of Luke 15 today, Uh, but before we do, I want to talk for a second about today, uh, about what today is, what it represents, and the history of the church, what it means for us moving forward. Uh, Today is, does anybody know what today is? Yeah, it's Reformation Sunday. Uh, So it's the day that we celebrate a moment over 500 years ago when a German dressed up like a monk for Halloween, and that was a joke, he he was actually a monk. Um, Anyway, uh, he... He called out the church. And he didn't do that because he wanted to overthrow it. He wasn't trying to start something new in its place. He wanted to reform it. He wanted to redeem it and fix it. To remind the church of her calling and her place in the world. So Martin Luther took his 95 complaints against the church. And he nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg. Hoping uh, to give the church eyes to see and ears to hear so she could see just how far she had strayed from God's word and from God's plan. He didn't want to overthrow it. And he wasn't trying to start something new. He wanted to reform it, to redeem it. So there were others that joined him in the cause. Uh, John Calvin is one of the more prominent names in our tradition at least. Um, And if you can handle a little satire this morning, um, watch this short video. movement of the 16th century, the birthplace of the Presbyterian Church. Here we have John Calvin talking about the importance of reform. He believed that we must always be looking for what God wants for us in our lives. To do this, John Calvin and other reformers believed that the church must be reformed and always reforming. The Presbyterian Church took this lesson to heart. Which is why, hundreds of years later, we see no significant changes at all. The Presbyterian Church is the same today as it was back at its founding. Essentially. That's because we got it right on the first try and never looked back. And I must say, it is marvelous being a part of a church that is so dependable. Always the same reliable, church. <laughs> it's funny because it's at least partially true, right? Um, I mean, I do, I doubt Calvin had tattoos. I know they didn't have drums. Um, I think he would have been appreciative of you on the organ today, though, so um, good job. Um, the narr- narrator used a phrase in that video She said that Calvin believed that the Presbyterian or the Reformed Church should be reformed and always reforming. It's Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, for those of you who speak Latin. That was the marketing slogan for the Reformation. Kind of. She left out a really important part of the slogan. The slogan is Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, Secundum Verbe Dei, which means, for those of you who don't speak Latin, the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. And it is so important that we get that right because Luther and Calvin and others, they weren't advocating change for the sake of change. They weren't advocating change for the sake of culture. They were advocating reformation for the sake of the gospel. And the authority on which they stood in order to demand that kind of change from the church was the word of God itself. So, in some ways, the church should be the same 500 years later. 
because the gospel hasn't changed. But if we are a people of the gospel, if we are a people whose authority is not the culture or the times, but the word of God, that means that we will necessarily and fundamentally all be changed over time. He doesn't leave us the same as he finds us. So today we're celebrating a day that the church recognized that when we encounter God's word, when we come face to face with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we realize that sometimes we are the ones who were wrong and that we need to return to scripture and we need to be reformed. We are made in the image of God, but every one of us is broken. We are a broken image. And when we recognize that we are the ones who are wrong, then we turn to scripture, return to the Holy Spirit, and we invite reformation, reformation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is reforming us so that we can join him on his mission to seek and save the lost and to call his people home. So the church reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. That's what we're celebrating today. Amen. So we've been looking at our identity, who we are. Last week, we began using some parables to help us to do this work. Uh, Last week, I shared with you just a quick recap that parables do a couple things. They reveal to us the nature of God. They tell us something about the king. They also reveal to us something about the nature of his kingdom. And we find that his kingdom is so very different from ours. Some even refer to it as an upside down kingdom. Everything is different. The parables also hold a mirror in front of us and they reveal the truth, sometimes difficult truth, not only about who God created us to be, but about who we are right now. And I didn't share this last week, but parables do a fourth thing. They do many things, but at least a fourth thing. They invite us into a new way of life. They invite us to trust and obey the king, to participate in this upside down kingdom now to begin to see in that mirror an image bearer who is being restored once again. Parables, they're invitations to live on earth as as if we are already citizens of heaven. And if we're living on earth as if we're already citizens of heaven, that means that the party has already begun and we're invited to join it. But that's not how everybody received the parables then and that's not how everyone receives them now. So before we read these three parables, I want you to hear the context in which they're told. This is the beginning of Luke 15. It says this, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Like, have you seen the kind of people this man chases after? Have you seen the kind of people that that he touches, that he comforts? Have you seen the kind of people that he worships with, that he eats with, that he celebrates with? That's what these Pharisees and teachers of the law are thinking. And Jesus knows this and in response, he tells three stories. Three stories that deal with loss and the celebration 
that follows when that lost thing is found. There's an author named Klein Snodgrass. He said, these are three parables that challenge those with ears to hear to join the celebration. But here's the problem. When you listen to these three parables as they're told, if we're honest, we notice some things. Some might even think that there are flaws in the heroes of these stories. Like in some ways, you could describe the heroes of these stories as an irresponsible shepherd, a woman who's just being ridiculous, and a wasteful father. The way the heroes respond in these stories, the value the heroes place on the things that are lost, the exorbitant celebration that follows if we're really paying attention, it's gonna sound strange. But what if an irresponsible shepherd, a ridiculous woman, and a wasteful father, what if they're the ones that are right? What if we're the ones that are wrong? And as we read these parables, the question, what does any of this have to do with our identity for our search for what's true about me and about you? This truth we've been saying for weeks that we are known that we are loved, that we are worth dying for, that we have been made in the image of God to be God's representatives here on earth. What do these stories have to do with that search? Well, what if these stories are designed to not only cause those with ears to hear to join in the party, but what if they're revealing that God's people don't always celebrate the victories that God celebrates? That God's people don't always value the things that God values. That God's people don't always understand or even seek the will of God. What if these stories hold a mirror in front of me and show me, yes, I am an image bearer of God. I am known, I am loved, I am worth dying for, but I am broken. I'm an image bearer of God, but I am broken. We are all broken images. What if these stories are trying to help us see that sometimes we're the ones who are wrong. So let's listen to these three parables and see if they might want to reform us, right? As a church and as individuals, reformed and always reforming. Everybody, according to the word of God. Come on, were you listening earlier? Are you okay? You awake? All right. You're just all stressed out because you think I'm gonna fuss at you. <laughs> I'm not. This is... Uh, today is a confession that's all about me, so let, uh, let me get started. Um, this is Luke 15, uh, starting in verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Who is he talking to? The Pharisees and teachers of the law, who are judging who he hangs out with. So Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, if you'll go along with me and just let me be critical just for a minute. Fair? Don't worry. It's gonna be okay. But how irresponsible of that shepherd to leave an entire flock defenseless in the wilderness all for one sheep. 
chasing after 1% at the expense of the 99. I am certain that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking when they heard that parable. When Jesus said in verse four, if you have 100 sheep and you lose one of them, won't you leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? Do you know what they all would have said? No. (laughs) Because that's crazy. It's abandoning your duty. It's irresponsible. Let's continue. Verse 8. He tells another parable. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. If you'll allow me to be critical for a moment. The coin that she lost was a drachma. That's the Greek word that Jesus uses. And its worth would vary, but generally it's accepted that a drachma was worth about a day's wages. It's actually also about how much it costs to buy one sheep. Interesting. So yes, the coin had value. But regardless of the value of the coin itself, it was still only 10% of everything she was holding in her hands. And do you know what it means culturally when it says that she went out to her neighbors and her friends and called them together to celebrate? It means that she threw a party. And do you know what it takes to throw a party? (laughs) Money. (laughs) To buy the food and the wine. To celebrate recovering 10% of what she had, she spent that money just so her friends and neighbors would come and celebrate with her. That's ridiculous. Why was she so obsessed with that one coin? I am sure that's what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking when they heard Jesus tell this parable. Okay, now the final parable. Uh, You heard the first part of this a couple weeks ago. Sabrina preached the section that we refer to as the parable of the prodigal son. It starts like this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And I won't read the rest of the section right now. You can go home and read it this afternoon or go and listen to the podcast, hear Sabrina's message. But when the wasteful son had nowhere else to go, he returned to his father, hoping to just be a servant. He didn't expect to be a son again. And what does the father do? He, he runs out to him, he embraces him, he brings him back home to the family, and he throws a party that was the equivalent of a wedding celebration. The father's actions were costly in every way, not only financially, but even costly to his reputation. So the story continues in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, the older son was out in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. (laughs) To which I'm sure the father went, 
but that's not in the story, so okay. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. If you'll allow me to come to the defense of the elder brother for just a moment. Like he kind of has a point, right? Dad is being incredibly wasteful. Like he's already given away roughly like a third of his estate when that younger brother of mine basically said to his face, dad, go ahead and die. I want what's mine. And then after that embarrassment wasted it all, dad embarrasses himself by running out to the hills, by bringing him home, giving him the robe, putting the ring on his finger and then throwing this ridiculous party. He's celebrating betrayal. The brother of mine hasn't done anything worth celebrating. He's just saving his own skin. He's only come home so that he wouldn't starve. Who's the real prodigal? The son who wasted a third of his father's estate? Or the father who threw away even more? I'm sure this is what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were thinking when they heard Jesus tell this parable. Okay, so I'm, I'm being dramatic for effect, obviously, right? But these are all historic objections that people have had to these three parables. Now, if we can quickly go through them, I can tell you that I don't really wrestle much with the objections offered by the elder son. That he's clearly wrong. The father in the story is revealing to us the character and the nature of God. And what it tells us is that the father's wastefulness in giving his son his estate and then in throwing this extravagant party when he returns, it's all a demonstration of this upside down kingdom of God. Tim Keller wrote a book about this. It's called The Prodigal God. God is the prodigal in the story in the sense that he spends his grace and mercy without caution or care. He wastes his love on sinners. So when we read this parable, it's clear to see that those two sons, they hold a mirror up to us. Now, originally, back then, that younger son clearly was meant to represent ancient Israel. God's family that historically had taken God's blessing and wasted it. And they would only return to God when they had nowhere else to go. And that's, that is not a shot, that's not a comment on anything happening today. Just read the Old Testament, <laughs> that's the story. And the elder son in the story, that's also Israel, but it's Israel during the time of Jesus. As Israel's leaders struggled to accept the Gentile world into the family, struggled to accept the lost, the broken, the sick. But the younger and older son, they're, they're also us. The church, us as individuals, still wasteful of God's blessings and gifts undeserving of them in the first place, but God's son and daughters nonetheless. Sons and daughters who are known, who are loved, who are worth dying for. Worth throwing the party of the year for when they finally come to love the God who loved them first. Now I have wrestled a little with the common objections to that parable of the lost sheep. Like it does seem obviously irresponsible to leave that entire flock. 
It's not like he took them so they'd be safe. It says that they're left out in the elements. They're left exposed to the dangers that he has promised and is charged with protecting them from. All to chase after this one sheep who won't follow him. So I get the objection, but there actually is an explanation. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Here's my confession. You ready? I have always objected to the parable of the lost coin. Or maybe a better way to say it, I have just never understood it. I've never understood it. Three weeks ago, during my Wednesday late night Bible study, uh, we read this chapter and I confessed. I shared with the group, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Let's just read the other two. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even if the coin itself had this incredible value, it still only accounted for 10% of what she had. I mean, aren't we just supposed to give that much over to the Lord anyway? Chalk it up as your tithe for the month and go about your business. Okay, but it is the responsible move to go ahead and look for the coin. That is right, she was right. It's only an overly privileged mindset would just ignore 10% not notice that it's missing. So good, go and search for it. What I never understood was the celebration. And the more I thought about it, the less I understood it. Because when I realized in the first century celebration it not only required food and wine, I noticed that she didn't just invite her friends. Who else did she invite? Her neighbors. By the way, this parable comes after the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus told told us that our neighbors are basically who? Everybody. And after realizing all that, I went from misunderstanding her actions to judging her actions. She's being ridiculous. You found a coin, just say yay and move on. So I was confessing all this, being honest and a member of the Bible study, a sweet woman, many of you know, she's so sweet, so kind, just she always has the best, most simple and succinct ways of speaking the truth. She said something like this. She said, maybe we don't get it because we don't value what God values. And do you see how sweet and kind she was being? (laughs) Right, do you know what she could have said? Chad, maybe you don't get it, because that's not what she said. But it felt like that. I felt that. She's absolutely right. Because like I said, parables, they hold a mirror up to us. They reveal not only who we are meant to be, but who we actually are. And Luke 15 does this in so many ways by showing us these two brothers, by showing us a lost sheep, a lost coin, but even the setting in which Jesus tells the parable, it held up a mirror to me that night and it showed me who I was. It showed me who I really was in the story. Remember the setting. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Leaders of Israel were judging Jesus for what he valued most, sinners. When she said those sweet words, the weight dropped on me because I realized I wasn't just standing in the place of wayward characters in the parables. I was standing in the place of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were judging and condemning Jesus as he told these stories judging Jesus for placing value in things where I saw none. I didn't have ears to hear and I couldn't join the rejoicing. 
Y'all, I've been studying the gospels for like a long time, like 20 years. I've read them in multiple languages. I only came to understand this parable three weeks ago. When my friend told the truth in love and helped me to hear again. This is what Jesus' parables do and this is what happens when you read scripture in community. They reveal the truth about who and what we are and they reveal truths that we might not always wanna see, things that we might not be able to see. We are the two lost sons, one wasteful, one overly religious, not faithful, religious, there's a difference. Both are invited to be more like a prodigal father who celebrates recklessly when grace is extended and then received by one of his children. We are lost coins, but we are coins who are worth more than our face value because what's inscribed on us doesn't compare to the value that the king has placed on us, even though we're broken. Some of you may know when coins were first used, their value was measured by the weight of the metal. That made inflation in the ancient world really simple. Just chip off a part of the coin and now the coin is worth less. We're broken, we're chipped, we're worn down coins, devalued from the world's perspective, often devalued from our own perspective because a broken coin has less worth I think that's sometimes why we feel worthless. If I were to take, I usually don't use object lessons, but like if I were to take this $20 bill, and if I were to tear it in half, <laughs> so somebody at 9.30 had the same reaction, which made me think, I think I just broke the law. <laughs> Um, I am not intending to defraud the U.S. government. I'm saying this to the camera. I'm just making an illustration, all right? <laughs> okay. If I have done this, which I have, y'all, I can't take this half of a bill or I can't even just put them both together and I can't expect a retailer or a bill collector to accept it, <laughs> right? In a sense, it's lost its value. Okay, now if I tape it back together again, what happens? Yeah, its value is restored, like kind of. Um, if it's gonna be useful, it has to be made whole again, it has to be exchanged. I still probably can't use it at a retailer, even if it's taped, or I probably can't pay my bills with it, but I can take it back to a bank and they'll give me a new one in its place. Right? <laughs> right? Okay. Um, yeah, I need to find out because I owe Mark 20 bucks. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> And that's why I chose $20, just in case. I don't wanna be wasteful for a broken analogy, right? Um, and here's the deal, this is a broken analogy. Because I can tape that bill back together and I can exchange it for face value, hopefully. I can tape it back together. I cannot put the bro broken pieces of God's image back together. That's where the analogy breaks down. I can tape money. I can't fix me, only he can. 
And no matter how lost we are, how damaged we are, how broken we are, he is offering some really good news. The good shepherd will put us on his shoulders. He will bring us home and he'll piece us back together again because we are worth more than a day's wages to him. And he's willing to pay more than 10% to save and find us. He's willing to spend it all. And he did. We are lost sons and daughters. We are lost coins. We are lost sheep. All of us. And just to complete the circle, that's the answer to the objection to the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd wasn't being irresponsible. Do you know why? Because there aren't 99 righteous sheep. There aren't 99 righteous sheep who don't need to repent. Romans 3 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There aren't 99 sheep who don't need to repent. There are only lost sheep. And our good shepherd is coming after us one by one. And he sacrificed his own life to bring us into the fold. We are lost sons and daughters. We are lost coins. We are lost sheep. All of us. Two quick implications to this. I'm, I'm done. First, it just reminds us that if we're broken, if we are lost, that sometimes we might be the one who's wrong. And I just wonder if we can imagine how that kind of humility, how might it impact our relationships? Husbands and wives, parents and kids. How might it impact our politics? Our place in the culture? Like, look, we can still argue and sometimes we should. I'm glad those reformers fought. <laughs> But our arguments will be more productive if we can learn to see the person we're arguing with not immediately as an enemy, but rather as somebody who they just might be wrong. And then we can have productive conversations because we're also willing to accept, hey, I might be the one that's wrong. I just need eyes to see and ears to hear and rely on the truth that we find in Scripture. Another implication of this is just to remember that when you come across sinners sinning, that they are sinners in need of a savior, just like me. That they are broken image bearers in need of restoration, just like you. That they are people who might be convinced that they are worthless which makes it really hard for them to accept that they are worth dying for. Before we were found, we too were lost. And praise God in his grace and mercy that he's found us. And now he wants to use us to bring his people home. Somebody after the 9.30, this is a little bit of a joke, but they, I was asking a lawyer if I needed to lawyer up after <laughs> ripping that bill. Um, but somebody had said, yeah, when you tore that money, like it shocked me, like it really kind of bothered me for a second. And I mean, I know they're kidding. I'm not like calling out idolatry, even though I said, well, that might be an idol. <laughs> but, but it did make me think, like, um, we are very obedient to the laws of our land and we should be. Don't get me wrong, we should be. 
But we have been commanded to love God and to love our neighbors as ourself. Commanded. We have been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has taught us. And for how long has the church sat around and done nothing? Wayward, disobedient, in need of reformation. That command and that commission, that's the reason we exist. I think God, through Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit, is just inviting us to do our job. So as we celebrate Reformation Sunday, we need to remember that to be reformed is to be a people who turn obediently to the scripture, who ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and when scripture reveals to me a difficult truth about me, I am to repent and allow God's word through the power of God's spirit to transform me, to reform me. And the same goes for the church. Reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, show us the ways in which we are disobedient. In your grace and your mercy, you do it with such truth but with love. And when it happens, help us to see it. Help us to be clear-sighted and not to walk out of this room and ignore it, but to do something about it, to plead with the Holy Spirit, to continue that transforming work in us so that we can go and show a world what it's like to have hope, to have faith, and to experience the love of a God who has loved us first. Help us to reform when needed but remind us to hold tightly to that gospel that never changes. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said. Amen.